Sarah. Back in John 19, we're going to start there today. As you see on your bulletin, we'll go to other passages of Scripture. I want to talk about when they crucified Jesus. This is Palm Sunday, and uh, we traditionally uh, recognize it along with uh, Easter next Sunday. Palm Sunday begins what we call the Passion Week. Uh, that, that is a busy week in the life of Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, this week begins in chapter 11 and goes through chapter 20. So uh, it, it's a, a busy time, and half of the Gospel of John is taken up just with this last week of his life. A lot goes on here. You remember the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into the city and they put palm leaves and, and things in his path on Sunday uh, to the cleansing of the temple, uh, which he does, and then the Last Supper in the middle of the week, the arrest, the trial, the Garden of Gethsemane, the crucifixion, and then finally the resurrection. So a lot happens here, and, and the Gospels spend a lot of time on this week. Palm Sunday and Passion Week, though, uh, give us a necessary disappointment. As, as uh, Howard said, this is a sad story when you read it in the Gospels. And of course, if it ended with the, without the last chapter, which is the resurrection, it would be even more sad still. But it's a necessary disappointment. May I tell you, may I tell you this little story about necessary disappointments? I... Uh, I had to do that to a little creature at home, give him a necessary disappointment. Uh, I, you know, I have a, a desk downstairs, and uh, there's a glass sliding door, and I can look out. Now, now this is robin time, you know, the birds, the robins, and they're terrible. Uh, and there's a, uh, do you know that robins will come and peck on your window because they see their reflection and they think they're fighting somebody because they're territorial and they're trying to you know they're building mud nests everywhere anyway making a big mess but they got to fight everybody else off so I'm sitting there studying and this crazy robin is pecking on the door with his beak so I have a rubber ball <laughs> on, my de on my desk and when he's pecking I go whop and man it just scares him and he runs off well so while I'm fighting the robins I'm noticing also that this other small bird, I don't know if it's a sparrow or chickadee or some little bird, but anyway, he's coming, and, and uh, he's flying by, and he's kind of a cute little bird. I'm looking at him, and then I notice that every time he, he goes out, he doesn't have anything in his mouth, but when he comes back, he's always carrying something. I get to thinking, that little guy's building a nest in my porch over here somewhere, you know? So I go outside, and sure enough, he's been going back and forth for a few days now, and I can't find that nest anywhere. I'm looking around. It's got to be here somewhere. And sure enough, there it was right on a shelf where I'm going to be when, when grass starts growing and you're mowing and using tools, it's going to be right there, and it's going to be a mess. And if that little guy or she starts putting eggs in that nest, then I'll never get them away from there, you know. So I've got to, you know, I feel sorry. Here's this little creature, and, and he or she's a nice little bird compared to these robins, and just minding her own business, building this little nest, and I've got to take this nest and throw it away. Disappointment. And then I see her come back, and it's kind of like, you know, do, do birds have sad looks? I don't know. But anyway, just stood there, you know, with a little stick in her mouth and looked over there, nowhere to go and flew off somewhere else, you know. So uh, that's my story of disappointment, <laughs> you know. But the point is, 
that disappointment's necessary sometimes. Sometimes you have to cut it off now so that better things can happen later on. It was time for her to build a nest somewhere else and uh, not be disappointed later. Well, remember, that is what's going to happen here. There's going to be great disappointment this, this week of the Lord's death to where by the time Jesus dies and the tomb is sealed and everyone's gone home, it's a sad, sad time. And if it all ended there and the story ended there, it would, in, uh, of course, be sad. Remember that when we're reading this in the Gospel of John or in the Gospels, th- there was no Palm Sunday and Easter in those days, right? I mean, it hadn't happened yet. You know, as a matter of fact, they, weren't, they didn't have Christmas either. I mean, they weren't celebrating uh, that as well. It was just a, another Passover week with a million people crowding into Jerusalem and going through the same things they've always gone through. And, uh, you know, for 400 years, the nation has been plotting on year after year, doing these things, uh, and God has not spoken to them in 400 years. We call it the 400 silent years. And uh, Just now and then, you know, 165 B.C., there's a national uprising, and the Maccabees cleanse the temple and things like that. But not much has happened during those times. And, oh, yeah, 30 years ago, there was some stories floating around around that little town of Bethlehem that something happened, some miracle happened down there, but ah, we don't know what that was. As a matter of fact, the big story 30 years before was the genocide that Herod, uh, you know, the terrorism that he uh, applied in trying to kill all the babies and be another Pharaoh and do the same thing he did. We remember that. But I don't know, shepherds and, you know, they told stories and things that we really don't believe. Now in Jesus' life for the last three years, there's been stirrings up in Galilee and down in Judea and every place that, that uh, there's, a, there's a man called Jesus who calls himself Messiah. Could that be true? And we hear that maybe there was a miracle here or there, but I'm not sure whether that's really real or not. But there's this stirring going on. And everybody's kind of looking for that kind of for, for that person. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, uh, ha- had followed him and believed in him and had great expectations. And they really believed that at any time Jesus was going to show himself as Messiah and deliver them, and there would be a kingdom, and he would be the king, and and it would all be done. And so you can imagine their disappointment by the time the week ended. But the people at large, they were kind of willing but skeptical. And when Jesus comes and enters into the uh, city on Sunday morning, uh, they're willing to run out there and yell Hosanna and put palm leaves in the way and kind of say, yeah, I guess this is the guy everybody's been looking for. Man, maybe we're going to see some really uh, interesting things this week. Of course, by the end of the week, as Howard read to us, they're going to be the same people are going to be yelling crucify him. We don't have any king but Caesar. So they're not really, their heart's not with them, but they're willing to go along. And then there's the high priest, you know, Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, and, and they, have, they have had a plot going on for quite a while now. And they found an accomplice, someone who's willing to be a traitor and, and sell him out. And so they've contrived a, a, a way to do it. And, and, and we see here in chapter 19 that they're causing a riot in order to get done what they want to get done and get rid of this guy uh, named Jesus. And then by the time there's uh, a trial 
and crucifixion with some other criminals, and they finally got this done where they released Barabbas and crucified Jesus, and now he's in the tomb and dead, good, it's all done, everybody go home, all of that is over, it's finished. And that's kind of where this week is going to go. But I ask you, what happened on that day? What happened on that day that Jesus died? What happened when they crucified him? And as you see in uh, your bulletin on your outline, we're going to explore that a little bit. He was in the world, John wrote. Uh, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. It's a sad day when this happened. As a matter of fact, there's no worse day in history than that day. So follow with me, if you will, uh, these three thoughts that I want to point out in the crucifixion of Jesus. And the first is, of course, that the Romans and the Jews did crucify Jesus. We read it here in, in John. We read it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, and, and throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's a historical fact. Uh, people work at denying the miraculous around this. Some go back, to, of course, to the virgin birth and deny that, and others deny a, a, a resurrection after his death and so forth, and that has always been and always will be. But uh, no one can really deny that, that, that this happened, he died. Well, Islam uh, does deny that he even died on the cross, that he was stolen away and that he really didn't die. And there have always been those kind of Passover plots and, and so forth. But the fact is, he died and the Romans did it, and so did the Jews. And when we ask ourselves, uh, well, who really crucified Jesus? Uh, the answer is always yes. <laughs> Whether this group, that group, you, me, uh, and that's what we're going to see here in our, our study this morning. Well, so first of all, in, in this story, we see these Romans, and Pilate, whom we, we know his name now, he's, he's introduced to us, but uh, Pilate officiated the crucifixion. He's called a procurator, uh, or we say in our language, governor of Judea for 10 years, 26 to 36 A.D. So he's the governor. These governors or procurators actually lived in Caesarea. Uh, that was the Roman town and by the seaside and a modern city and all of that. And so that's where they like to live. But Jerusalem was always the center of activity, especially in, in Israel for the Jewish people. So when there were feast days, the governor had to go to Jerusalem and stay in Herod's palace, and he had to make sure that the peace was being kept and everything was okay during this busy week. A million people flooding into Jerusalem, after all, is a lot to handle. So he's there to keep the peace, and he really doesn't want what's going to happen. He doesn't want it on his hands, but he's, it is going to be in his lap nonetheless. And then there's Herod that is in town at the same time, of course. Herod is called the king tetrarch or king, uh, and this would be the son of Herod the Great. And then in the book of Acts, there's going to be two more Herods. So there's a whole family tree from Herod the Great uh, that lasts throughout the New Testament story. And Herod, you know, he killed John the Baptist, had John beheaded, and you remember uh, that story. And, and uh, uh, he always wanted to see Jesus and see a miracle and capture him. He, he really wanted to see this. And so when Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, Herod's happy. And he wants to see something, but, but uh, Jesus isn't even going to speak to him. 
isn't going to answer him, isn't going to give him the, the uh, satisfaction of hearing him. And so here are these uh, Romans, and, the, and Jesus, of course, is going to die by Roman crucifixion. It is their method of death. They have to okay it. If, if Pilate had said or Herod had said, no, we will not crucify you, the, the Jews had no power to do it. So the Romans had to give their okay to it. You know, Paul makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He says this, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world under our glory. Then he says, Which none of the princes of this world knew, which would include Pilate and Herod, of course, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Sad statement, but true. Pilate was on the edge. He was on the verge, wasn't he? Pilate said, well, what is truth? And Do you want me to crucify your king? I find no fault in this man. You know, Pilate was right there, but he wasn't convinced, of course, and didn't know that this really was the Son of God in the flesh. And if a person really realizes that this is the Son of God in the flesh, he won't crucify the Lord of glory. So the Romans did it, but secondly, the Jews did it. Because uh, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Back in chapter 18, uh, uh, just a, a little bit before this, uh, and, and actually all the way back to chapter 11, we're introduced to Caiaphas. But uh, verse 13 says, they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. So it seems anyway that there was a father who was older and kind of relinquishing his throne to, uh, or throne, uh, the position of high priest to the son. But Caiaphas is really the one, isn't he? Caiaphas is the one, the main culprit. If you go all the way back to chapter 11 of John, chapter 11 is where uh, we have the story of Lazarus. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that right outside the city of Jerusalem. And that news spreads into Jerusalem, and Caiaphas hears it and says, uh-oh, we've got trouble here. And from the end of chapter 11 all the way through, Caiaphas is already planning how he's going to put Jesus to death. He's coming up with a thought, you know, we release a man every year at this time. And so we need to find a way to trade Jesus for the prisoner we're going to release. And of course, in the end, he does that with, with Barabbas. So here's Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. And you know, later on when Peter is preaching and then Paul is preaching, listen to these words at Pentecost, after it's all said and done, and Jesus is of course resurrected and ascended back to heaven, Peter preaches to the Jews in chapter 3, in verse 14, he looks right at them and says, you denied the Holy One and the Just, capital J, Just One and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. You killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead, where we're all witnesses, right? Saying to the Jewish people, you did it and you know you did it. Paul later in writing to the Thessalonians in 2.15 will say, uh, of the Jewish people, my own people, he's saying, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. 
and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved and fill up their sins always, for the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. So the Bible makes it plain that they killed the Lord too. And they did it, of course, by decision. And by the way, folks, we will never quite understand how God took that. <laughs> Maybe until he tells us in person. And he told them, when you do this, your nation will be destroyed. And Jesus uh, predicted it, and it happened. And he let the Romans come in and destroy that nation for what they did. The Holy Spirit was offended by this decision and withdrew his, his witness from the nation of Israel. It was a terrible thing for the Son of God to say, I will come to you, children of Abraham, the, the greatest, my nation in, in, in all the world, I will come through you, and then have this nation say, we don't want you. We'll crucify you if you do. And that's exactly what they did. So the Romans crucified him, and the Jews crucified him. But think a minute about Jesus himself here in this story. And I know I'm not just going through word by word here, but I'm giving you the picture. Jesus was pronounced not guilty three times by Pilate, was he not? Three times. And, and Pilate has the right to release him, and legally then Jesus was, was pronounced uh, innocent. You can go your way. <laughs> And yet they scourged him, by the way, before the announcement was given, which was unusual in the, in the uh, order of things. He's usually pronounced guilty and then scourged. They scourged him just to please the Jews. And yet he pronounces him not guilty, and yet uh, he allows them to crucify him anyway. Kind of a weak-livered uh, Roman leader who had the power, but when there's a million Jews in the city and everybody's ready to riot and everybody's threatening, he gives in and lets it happen. Well, uh, you know, the fact is, of course, that nobody had the power to take the life of Jesus except himself. Isn't that right? Remember this in John 10, 17, he said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And in chapter 19, verse 30, where we find Jesus finally dying on the cross, it says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. And so it is true that they crucified him, but it's also true that he gave himself for us. He gave his life for us. Just, just by way of quick review, and no one can, can describe the crucifixion and do it justice as to what happened that day. As a matter of fact, uh, it's not a matter of how much they beat Jesus, how much he bled, though he had to bleed, and of course... No one can understand how anyone can bear the weight of the sins of all humanity upon you and have God turn his back on you and let you die carrying the sins of the whole world and not your own sins. No picture can describe that. No one, even the, the centurion standing there, couldn't see that. 
but they started out with scourging their, their convicted uh, prisoners, and of course that scourging, uh, 40 stripes save one with a cat of nine tails, just ripped his body apart and so forth. Then they made their prisoners carry their cross or at least part of their cross to the place of crucifixion, uh, just a, a way of shame, parading them through the streets of the city. When they got there, they stripped them naked, stripped off their clothes, another way of showing shame. And then they, they uh, bound him to the cross, and sometimes binding them, tying them to the cross, and other times nailing them to the cross. And of course, we know what happened to Jesus is that they, they put the nails in him and nailed him to the cross. And the cross was basically a way to die by suffocation over a period of time. Uh, though they had a way for them to struggle and try to keep air in their lungs, finally that, that person is going to collapse. And if, and if you're trying to push against nails that are through your feet and your hands to push yourself up, it's harder than if you were tied there, of course. They even had a cup of medication that they would give to a prisoner on the cross to to numb the pain, and Jesus refused it, of course, you remember, and said, I'll not take that. Uh, as I read it, that the uh, longest person that ever stayed on the cross till he died was nine days. Can you imagine a person staying in such a condition for nine days until he finally died? Of course, Jesus gives up his life, and probably no one went to the cross having suffered first what Jesus suffered so that his body was near death and near bled to death anyway by the time he got there. And then, of course, if they were still alive, uh, they broke their legs so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore and release their air, uh, and so they died that way. But when they got to Jesus, of course, he was already dead, and uh, so they did not break his legs. Generally, the Romans would let the bodies rot on the cross and leave them there for days, weeks, or months, let the birds eat them, whatever, as a sign to everybody of, of the criminal act that they did. And then they would simply take the bodies off and throw them in the trash dump and let them burn there with the rest of the trash. And that's what happened to a criminal on the cross. Uh, of course, a wonderful thing that, that uh, Nicodemus and, and Joseph said, we'll not let that happen, and went and begged the body and took it and, and uh, buried him uh, according to the prophecies. And so that was the crucifixion of Jesus, and uh, he died, and he did that for you and for me. Uh, though he could have called 10,000 angels, 12 legions of angels, and they would have come and rescued him, but he did that for you and for me. Remember, Isaiah said, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. I like what Paul says in the book of Colossians, also chapter 2, you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Your sins and mine nailed to that cross, never to be remembered uh, against us again. And so the Romans and the Jews crucified Jesus. Secondly, 
I want you to turn to Hebrews 6 and uh, notice a couple more things, one in Hebrews and one in Galatians. Because I couldn't pass up this thought, and I think as we preach this 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, to people who aren't Romans or Jews, what do we say about this? And I say this, every unbeliever who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior crucifies Jesus himself. And that's what Hebrews 6, 6 says. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame again, you might say. If we read from verse 1 down through verse 6, what we find is that when God brings them conviction and they're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and they say no to that, how does that person come back to repentance? I think there are three key words in our, in our verse here that I want you to notice that kind of give you the process of what happened. The first one is fall away. If they shall fall away to renew them again. Now, this does not mean, of course, that somebody who's saved falls away from salvation and loses their salvation. Not at all. As a matter of fact, a page to your left in chapter 2 and verse 3, you'll see this same word fall away translated as the word neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So what does the word fall away here mean? It means I don't want it. I neglect it. I'll not accept it. As translated in chapter 2 verse 3. And so... When you look back up at verses 4 and 5, I'm in chapter 6 again, they fall away from conviction. Notice this conviction. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. You know that every, every person who hears the gospel is enlightened by the gospel and the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the heavenly gift. The Holy Spirit has actually penetrated that heart and put some pressure on that heart. We're made partakers or partners of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted of the word of the Word of God. When you give them, uh, you must be born again. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and of the powers of the world to come. All of that happens to a person when they are convicted of their sin. And you're asking them to accept Christ as Savior if they fall away from that, if they neglect that. If they say, I don't want that, what happens to them? Well, we're going to see. Secondly is the word impossible. Because if you have the word falling away, then he had already said in verse two, verse 4, I mean at the beginning of this long sentence, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. The word impossible is our word adunatos. I spoke about that last week. Not able to. And so they're rejected. Look at, look at verse 8 of our text. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto curse, uh, uh, cursing whose end is to be burned. And so they are rejected because uh, they don't bear the fruit of salvation. And so here it, it is impossible for a person to say, I don't want Christ. You don't, receive, you don't receive Christ by doing that. 
Now, is it impossible? I say this. It's impossible for you to save yourself anyway. It's impossible for you to have some good work that would save you anyway. But if you reject the Holy Spirit and you say no to the Spirit that's convicting you, you cannot be saved without the, convict, the, the Holy Spirit's conviction on your heart. You've told him, go away. You've told him some other day. And so it's rejected. Do you remember Peter saying it this way in 2 Peter chapter 2? If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end of them is worse than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But as it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is returned again to his vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. How do you get them out of that? And so you have falling away, and you have impossible, and then thirdly, you have the word afresh. What do they do? In that case, what does that person do that has re rejected Christ? They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. Really, crucifying Him afresh. Let me read you chapter 10, verse 29 also in a similar context. How much sorer punishment suppose you shall, be thought, shall He be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. That's how God sees what someone has done when they've rejected Christ. I don't want your blood. I don't think your blood can cleanse me. And what are they saying about the crucifixion? You deserve to die for your own sins, not for mine. Now, a, per, you, a person may say, I didn't say that when I rejected Christ, but God says, yes, you did. As far as I'm concerned, you were one of the ones that stood there and said, crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. I don't need him. When a sinner does this, crucifies the Son of God afresh. You know, we have two examples later on in the book of Acts. One by Felix when Paul's preaching. And Felix, it says, he reasoned, Paul reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Felix trembled and said, go thy way. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call on you. Go your way. And then there's Agrippa. King Agrippa, he said, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost, but not quite. Crucifying the Son of God afresh. There's a story about the writer of the song, and sometimes we sing the song, Almost Persuaded, remember? And it's written by a man named Philip Bliss, uh, never lived to be 50 years old. And the reason is he had written this song and many other songs that we sing in our songbook, almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go, spirit, go your way. Some more convenient day on the I'll call. Bliss had written that song and next, by the way, next week when my Aletheia is out, Terry has written the, a little biographical sketch of, Philip, of Bliss and how he died. But basically, uh, Philip Bliss and his wife were on a train to take a vacation, 
And one of those tragedies happened, and of course this was 100 years ago when, when the train trestle over a river broke and the train plunged into the river and he and his wife both died. Their bodies were never even found. You know, when you say almost persuaded, when you say go spirit, go your way, you never know when the end is coming for you. Praise God, somebody like Philip Bliss said, I'm prepared. I didn't say that. But every sinner does when they reject the Lord. And then quickly, uh, uh, let me just uh, have you look at Galatians 2.20 and re remember this, and I put it here thirdly, and that is, you and I who have received Christ as Savior, who have believed, we have been crucified with Him. We, we have said, yes, we will die with you. And Paul says it in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, 19, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First of all, we are dead to the law when we receive Christ as our Savior. Verse 19 says it. And what, and, and what that means is when the law of God came to you and said, you are a sinner, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you took it to heart and said, I am, I'm a sinner. I, I am a goner. I deserve uh, death and hell. Rather than saying to Jesus, no, you deserve to die for your own sins. You said, I'm the sinner. And the law has condemned you and brought you to that point of death. And, and we could read it throughout the book of Galatians. This whole book is about that. But then secondly, we are uniquely crucified with Christ then. Though he died for us and we don't die as part of our salvation or in his place or anything like that, it's just saying we grab a hold of him as he goes into death and he brings us out of that death in resurrection. I'm buried with him by baptism into death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. I say that every time I baptize somebody, buried in the likeness of his death, but raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And so Paul will talk about in this, in this book, he'll talk about that death and that resurrection, that baptism in, in chapter 3, verse 27. As many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And even, he will say later in chapters 5 and 6, he's crucified the, the affections and lusts of the world. The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I'm dead with him and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. That's your other choice. That's your choice to let him do that. And yet he says in this text, yet I live. I died, but I'm alive. I've, I left my sins there in that grave with him, and when he resurrected victorious over death and sins, I resurrected with him. And the life that I now live, even in this flesh still, I live by that faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why that water baptism is such a wonderful picture. Someone comes down and goes down into death and then comes up out of that death and walks away. Newness of life. What a wonderful thing that is. And so, why did Jesus die and who crucified him? Yes. The Romans, the Jews, the world, and every sinner who needs him, and every saint 
who received him. He died for us too, but we received him, and we died with him. We're not going to sing the song Almost Persuaded as our invitation, and, and the reason is I don't want you to be almost persuaded. <laughs> if you don't know Christ as Savior, I want you to trust him, and we're going to sing Only Trust Him. Because that's the positive side of it. That's the positive message of when, the, 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 uh, when we realize this truth, we put our trust and faith in Him and we have that resurrected eternal life. And so, uh, if you've done that, then sing out this song as a gospel witness and testimony. And if you have not done it, receive that truth today. Stand now with me if you will. And we will pray and then we'll open our songbooks and sing in just a minute. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us of this story. I'm glad we have an Easter season now that we have to come to this week and remind ourselves of these things again and again. May we never forget uh, what you did on the cross for us. We look forward to next Sunday when we talk about the glorious resurrection that gave us our victory. But Father, I pray now that you would just burden our hearts with what we've heard even as your children, that we might realize the wonderful story that we have to tell, and we might be thankful for what you've done to us. And then, Father, if uh, there's someone under the sound of, of my voice or maybe any voice preaching this message today, that they might turn from their sins and accept Christ as Savior and trust in him. So, Father, I pray your will would be done, and each and every one of us that hears this, in Jesus' name, amen. John's going to come and lead us in the song. You respond to this by...